0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker.
1: Morning everyone. Um, it's great to be back here at Harvest. Um, I was looking at the, um, <clears throat> my kind of archives of past messages preached elsewhere and Saw that. I think the last time I was here was actually been a couple of years uh, since last I preached here, and uh, I'm so thankful that we're working together as uh, this Thrive Network, and we're uh, really um, just trying to grow in our understanding of what it means to be a community beyond the local church. And so, you know, as uh, Pastor Dave shared, my main agenda here is not to preach today, but to share with you some exciting movement that we've got going in the Thrive Network about starting some mission initiatives. And so one of the first mission trips that we are organizing is for July to go to Kenya, Africa, where I served for five years as a missionary. And so um, I hope many of you will stick around for that informational meeting following the service so that you can just get a a better sense of what this trip is going to be all about and see maybe if God may have something for you there to be a part of that. And so... Uh, I'll be doing that after the service is just really fleshing out what the details of this mission trip are going to be uh, for uh, the Thrive Network. And so hope you're able to stick around for that. Pastor Dave did ask me to preach from the Psalms. And I told him um, I, I have never done a series on the Psalms. And I think in the last 10 years, I preached twice out of the Psalms. Pause. apologize. So I'm picking one of those two messages to <laughs> preach for you this morning. Uh, What I have done, though, in my most recent series is preach through the life of David. And we call that series After God's Heart. And so I, in the midst of preaching through the life of David, um, always try to interweave uh, the Psalms whenever I could. uh, That I think really gives us an insider's viewpoint into what was going on in David's heart through these different seasons of his life. And when I got to the issue of lament, I realized that there's just so much there in the life of David that has to do with lament that I took a a whole Sunday service uh, just to explore that theme of lament in David's life. And so that's what I want to unpack for you this morning. Um, Can we just bow in a word of prayer and then we'll get into God's word. God, show us uh, an understanding of the heart of David, that by understanding his heart we may know your heart. And understand the invitation that you give to us to walk into this journey of lament and somehow at the end of that journey to be able to get to that destination where we can say, God is good, God is good. And so open up our hearts this moment and teach us through your living word and through the work of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Some of you may know uh, Sung Chan Ra. Uh, He's a professor locally here at the North Park College At North Park University. And he shares about the struggles that he has had with his father all of his life. His father abandoned his family when he was young, uh, leaving them in incredible financial hardship. And his mother had to work two jobs to shoulder the financial burden left by the father. And so, Sungchan Chan Ra basically says, I feel that when my father left, I lost both parents. I lost both parents. And that even deepened his anger and resentment toward his father. And he nurtured that anger for years. And then in this really strange turn of events, when he was in his 70s, his father, now destitute, returned home. And remarkably, his mother forgave him and received him back. But that forgiveness was much more difficult for Sung Chan. He just couldn't forgive his father for everything he had done to their family. Not long after his father returned home, he ended up getting a stroke. And he was transferred from the hospital to hospice where he lingered for about a month in this debilitated state before he passed away. And Sunchan Chan Ra writes of that experience. Not only had he returned after years away, but also he had returned just in time to saddle my mom with the medical bills and to further burden his family. I went back to Massachusetts, but returned several weeks later when I was told that he might not have long to live. By this point, my anger had amplified along with his mounting medical bills. I went to his bedside but did not give thought to the reality of his imminent death. Later that evening, I found myself in the family waiting room listening to my mom and my sisters as they began to talk in detail about the funeral arrangements and the event that would happen in just a few more days. It finally hit me with full force that my dad was really going to die. I left the waiting room, rushed over to my father's room, and kicked out my nieces and nephews. Alone with my dad, I sat by his bed and clasped his hand in mine. Through tears and with a tight grip on his hand, I offered him my complete forgiveness. I asked for his forgiveness for the years of bitterness I had harbored against him. Through his tears and his tightening grip, we were reconciled just hours before his death. The reconciliation that occurred with my father on his deathbed required an important realization on my part. My father was dying and this could be my last chance to talk to him. Our history, a history of loss and pain took an added meaning when I acknowledged the reality of his death. That reality changed the equation. The details may not be be the same for you, but I wonder if there's any sense in which you could identify with the pain that he experienced because of his broken relationship with his father. His story is just one example of the many ways that we experience loss and pain in a broken world. This is why lament is such an important practice of the Christian. If I were to ask you this, Probing question, what are the three most painful experiences of your past? Could you name them? I suspect for some of you, the second you're asked this, it just rolls off your tongue because you live in that pain on a daily basis. But I also suspect that some of you may really have to wrestle with trying to figure out what those three pains may be in your life. And if I were to ask you this, how has that pain shaped the person that you've become? What if I were to ask you, how has your faith played a role in the shaping of that pain? In essence, all of these questions I'm asking you are to really ask you simply this one question that I've brought to you this morning Do you know how to lament? Do you know how to lament? Before we go any further, let me define my terms a little bit here. Maybe we could define lament like this. A lament is a cry to God in response to the pain, suffering, and loss we experience in our broken world. It's a cry to God that's in response to the pain and loss that we feel inside. And what's interesting is that David wrote more laments than anyone else in the Bible. And it's interesting because despite being favored by God and in essence being told he had a blessed life, it's rather incredible how much this guy suffered in the course of his life. It really causes us to rethink what it means to even be told we have a blessed life. How much he would go through. As I went through this series in the life of David with my church, we saw how much pain and heartbreak would visit David throughout every season of his life, even to the very end. For over a decade, he would spend running away from Saul in the wilderness, fleeing from his life, jumping from one cave to the next, like a animal, like a wild animal. And during that time, you see him go through so many different emotions from self-pity and fear of just trying to live another day, survival at the very brink of existence, to deep senses of betrayal and abandonment, into impatience, wondering when God was going to fulfill the promise in his life that he would have been given as a child, that he would be heir to the throne of Israel. But what is interesting is when he finally hears the news of Saul's death, his nemesis, there's no gloating. There's no rejoicing. There's actually an authentic and deep sorrow that overcomes David. And what I would argue is to get to that place where he could actually mourn the death of his enemy was an unbelievable journey that David had to go on, which I would argue is the journey of lament. Before he goes any further, he stops all of his people and he writes this beautiful poem in honor of Saul and his son Jonathan. And then in 2 Samuel 1, 17 to 18, we find this recorded. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jeshar. And so in the midst of this warfare that's going on, in the civil war that is broken on in Israel, between the house of Saul and the house of David, David basically puts a ceasefire to that war. And he says, listen, to the house of Judah, which is his house, he says, we are going to spend a season mourning for the death of this man. Because he was God's anointed. And so David teaches his people how to lament. And I would argue that in our modern church, we also need to be taught how to lament because, truthfully, I don't think we're very good at it. If you comb through the Psalms, what you'll discover is that around 50 to 70% of every psalm is a psalm of lament. And that is staggering, okay? 50 to 70% of every psalm in the book of Psalms is a lament. If you compare that to the Christian worship that we do in the modern church today, it is a huge contrast. Many of you are familiar with the CCLI, that's basically the licensing organization for Christian music. And a few years back, it was discovered that out of the top 100 songs in the CCLI, Uh, catalog that are being sung by churches in America today, only five of the top 100 were songs of lament, okay? Think about that. 50 to 70% of the songs in the Bible are laments. 5% of our songs are lament. In other words, I think the modern church in America has lost the lament as an actual part of worship. I want to basically look at the different stages of lament and try to unpack that with you for the remainder of this message. And the stages we're going to look at first is, one is honestly acknowledge and express our emotions before God. Second is seek God's understanding and help. And then lastly, trust in God's goodness despite our present circumstances. And if we just sort of think about why we may lament, there are so many losses and pains that we can experience in life. It could be the death of a loved one or the death of a dream. It could be a broken friendship. It could be a couple struggling with infertility. It could be struggling and suffering at the hands of some unjust Situation, unjust situation that we experience in life. It could be the loss of our health as we age or entering into a new season of life. There are just so many sources of loss that we experience in life. What's also interesting to me is that this is a list that looks all pretty negative, but even positive change can often come with it, a loss that we must learn how to lament. You know, when you think about even changing jobs because you got an advancement in your career. There's a pain of leaving the company that you were once devoted to, or frankly, upsizing your house and moving to a better neighborhood, and yet all the loss that's experienced in that transition. The birth of your first child could be a source of great joy, but it is also the death of a season of your marriage in which you no longer have uninterrupted intimacy with your spouse. And for the rest of your life, you must learn this incredibly difficult lesson that it is not about you. you It will never be about you again, okay, when you are a parent. And there's a loss there. Anatole France says it like this. All changes, even the most longed for, have their melancholy. For what we leave behind is part of ourselves. We must die to one life before we can enter into another, And so the truth is, living in this life, all of us go through all kinds of loss. And yet for most of us, we don't know how to process that loss. We just try to move on to the next thing. We just try to be happy again. And yet maybe there's a certain aching that lingers. And we don't know what to do with it. But it's affecting us, nevertheless. I think this is why God gives us lament. And so let's begin with the first point. The starting point of lament is to honestly acknowledge and express our emotions to God. Now listen, I want to clarify something here. I think particularly in psychology circles, there is definitely a, a, a thought, an argument, that emotions are neither right nor wrong. They just are. And in light of that, we should not judge someone for their emotions, but simply validate them, whatever they may be. And I wanna say this, I understand from from that perspective um, a legitimacy to that in the sense like this, is that we worry that if we start to judge somebody's emotions, whether they are right or wrong, then we no longer feel free to deal with them honestly, right? If we feel, in other words, that our emotions may be judged, then we're more likely to stuff them inside out of guilt or shame. Uh, But I I would argue, actually, that what the Bible teaches us is that every aspect of our personality is influenced by sin, right? There's a sort of global effect of sin so that it not only affects affects our actions and our thoughts and our desires and our will, but even our emotions, are impacted by our sinfulness but nevertheless i would affirm this our emotions are not free from the effects of sin but we still are invited to express them to god because they honestly reveal the condition of our heart and that's important In other words, we don't necessarily express angry feelings to God because our anger is necessarily justified, but because we are simply confessing, this is what's going on inside of me, God. And I want to acknowledge that honestly before you. Think of it this way. A doctor cannot give you the right diagnosis and the right treatment if you are not honest about the symptoms that you're suffering from. If you have gassy, bloody diarrhea, and I'm sorry I have to say that. You probably have never heard that spoken behind this pulpit before. Although, knowing my brother, you may have. I don't know. All right. Okay. If if you have gassy, bloody diarrhea, and you tell your doctor that your neck is sore, you are very likely to leave his office with a prescription for some muscle relaxers and pain medicine while your bowel infection rages on. Do you get the point? Okay. In other words, how can we be healed from what we cannot acknowledge as the true struggle of our hearts? I think this is why lament is so important. It's because so many of us struggle with being honest about the negative emotions that we feel inside that indicates and reveals the true condition of our hearts. David was not like that, and he becomes our great teacher to show us what it means to deal honestly with the things that are going raging inside of us to God. Psalm 142, verse 1 to 2 says, a masculine of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. And when I read that, I think, which of the dozens of caves is this even referring to? Because it seems like he spent half his life in a cave. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Psalm 69, verse 1 through 4. To the choir master, according to lilies of David. Now, that word in Hebrew, Shoshana, it's a beautiful word. It either translates lily or rose. And that basically seems to tell the choir master what the musical score is to the lyrics that David wrote. And when you hear Lilies, you think that it's going to be this beautiful love song. Play it to the tune of Lilies. And then this is what David says in verses 1 to 4. And I'm going to read from the message, Eugene Peterson's the message, because I think it does well to capture those emotions. God, God, save me. I am in over my head, quicksand under me, swamp water over me. I am going down for the third time. I'm hoarse from calling for help, bleary-eyed from searching the sky for God. I've got more enemies than hairs on my head. Sneaks and liars are out to knife me in the back. What I never stole must I now give back. David is expressing so many emotions here of despair and terror and discouragement and hopelessness and self-pity and indignation. Psalm 109 verse 1-6 to Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. And I'm going to read from the message again for verses 7 to 15. And look at what David says in his honest moment of anger. When he's judged, let the verdict be guilty. And when he prays, let his prayer turn to sin. Give him a short life and give his job to somebody else. Make orphans of his children. Dress his wife in widow's weeds. Turn his children into begging street urchins. Evicted from their homes, homeless. May the bank foreclose and wipe him out. And strangers like vultures pick him clean. May there be no one around to help him. No one willing to give his orphans a break. Chop down his family tree so that nobody even remembers his name. But erect a memorial to the sin of his father and make sure his mother's name is there too their sins recorded forever before god but they themselves sunk in oblivion wow <laughs> what a far cry from love thy enemy huh it's interesting when you read through the life of david in first and second samuel there's this repeated theme that emerges of David's complaint, which is repeatedly, he says, what have I done to deserve any of this? What did I do to deserve all of this garbage that's happening in my life? Whether it is Saul repeatedly trying to kill him, or even the very village that he rescued from the Philippines, the the Philistines, (laughs) turning their backs on him and stabbing him in the back, and then sending spies to tell Saul his location, or this fool Nabal who refuses even a simple act of kindness in light of the sacrificial love that David shows him. All of these injustices just seem to be piling up to David, and this is David now raging in anger and injustice. And he says, throw the book at them, God. I don't even care what happens to them. Yale professor Nicholas Waltersdorf lost his son, Eric, when he was only 25 years old, studying for his doctorate in Australia. He had decided to go mountain climbing, which was his favorite pastime, but he did it by himself, which is not advised. And in the midst of that hike, one slip of his foot off a ledge, and he plummeted thousands of feet to his death. And in his book, Lament for a Son, Walter Storff records in such agonizing and candid detail the pain and sorrow that he experienced for years after his son had died. And this is what Walter Storff said. Even despite the fact that I never lost my faith in God, I went through this unbelievably difficult journey. Walter Storff writes, Elements of the gospel which I had always thought would console did not. They did something else, something important, but not that. It did not console me to be reminded of the hope of resurrection. If I had forgotten that hope, then it would indeed have brought light into my life to be reminded of it. But I did not think of death as a bottomless pit. I did not grieve as one who has no hope. Yet Eric is gone here and now. He is gone. Now I cannot talk with him. Now I cannot see him. Now I cannot hug him. Now I cannot hear of his plans for the future. This is my sorrow. A friend said, remember he's in good hands. I was deeply moved. But that reality does not put Eric back in my hands now. That's my grief. For that grief, what consolation can there be other than having him back? Nothing fills the void of his absence. He is not replaceable. We cannot go out and get another just like him. There is a hole in the world now, in the place where he was. There is now just nothing. Only a hole remains. Avoid a gap never to be filled. You see, with the death of his son, Waltersdorf was thrust into a harrowing journey in a foreign land where nothing felt predictable or familiar or sure anymore. It's to me a remarkable testimony when someone can go through something like this and say, God is good, okay? And I believe by faith, God enables some people to make that declaration pretty shortly after going through incredible loss and pain. But I would argue that more often this confession comes only at the end of a long journey of lament. After a long struggle with God, trying to understand His ways, And this is my worry for us as Christians. We know that that's the final destination is God is good. But we can undercut the journey to that true confession out of the pressure to declare that by not realizing that where we really are at this journey, at the start of it is just, I am so mad at you, God. And I know that maybe it's not the best thing to feel inside, but this is how I feel is just rage, rage against you, rage against others. We need to start there with honesty, of letting God deal with where we are at the beginning of that journey of lament, if we're going to experience the healing that God wants to give us. So we begin with the honest expression of our emotions to God, but as we do that, as our heart is revealed through our emotions, the next step of lament is to seek God's understanding and help. We cannot change our emotions by willpower alone. If you are angry, you cannot will yourself to stop being angry. You could maybe in the short term, but not in the long term. If you are afraid, you cannot will yourself to not be afraid. I used to try that all the time because I had such stage fright when I was a little child. And every time I'd have to give a book report at school or something, I would be getting ulcers like weeks in advance. And then when I'm getting ready to speak before the classroom, I was like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Guess how well that worked, okay? It did not work. Rather than trying to change our emotions by brute force, I think what we're invited to do is to ask God to deal with the underlying beliefs that give rise to those emotions and to deal honestly with those beliefs. Because maybe your emotions are revealing that the truth is you actually do doubt whether God cares about you. Maybe the truth is you believe you are a totally innocent victim and that it's everyone else around you who is evil and out to get you. Maybe what your emotions are revealing is that you have lost all hope for tomorrow, that tomorrow could be a better day than today. Dan Allender and Trumper Longman write, Rather than focusing on trying to change our emotions, we are wiser first to listen to them. They are a voice that can tell us how we are dealing with a fallen world, hurtful people, and a quizzical God who seldom seems to be or do what we expect of him. Although emotions are generally aroused in a human context, they always reveal something about how we are dealing with God. I think that's such an important statement they are making, is that our emotions are almost aroused, almost always aroused in the context of some interpersonal issue with other people. But ultimately, they're pointing to us wrestling with God. Is God good? Is he just? Does he really love me? Do I even matter to him? Is he even involved in any of this in any meaningful way? listen to the way that david deals with the struggles of his heart psalm 7 verse 1 to 5 o lord my god in you do i take refuge save me from all my pursuers and deliver me deliver me lest like a lion they tear my soul apart rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friends with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. What he is saying is, help me understand why I am going through this. Is it my fault? Have I done something to contribute to this? What is going on here, God? Listen to this uh, Psalm 7, 1 through 5 through the message. God, God, I am running to you for dear life. The chase is wild. If they catch me, I'm finished, ripped to shreds by foes, fierce as lions, dragged into the forest and left, unlooked for, unremembered. God, if I've done what they say, betrayed my friends, ripped off my enemies, if my hands are really that dirty, let them get me. Walk all over me. Leave me flat on my face in the dirt. Saying, God, you are the judge of my heart. You are the one that tests every soul. Look at Psalm 139, same sentiment. Verses 21 to 24. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite psalms, except for these verses that mar it. And I just so wish they would have stopped a little earlier because he's talking about these things about how I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and knit together and God knew me in the womb and all of this. And then it says, and those scoundrels, I hate them. Oh, God, you know how horrible people they are. And I hate them because you hate them, God, right? Because I only have righteous hatred for them. (laughs) And he's just acting so self-righteous here. But the beauty of this, he says, is search me, oh God, and know my heart. Because maybe my anger is not so self-righteous. Maybe it isn't so justified. And he's saying, frankly, God, I don't know. I don't know if this is right, what I feel toward these people. So God, I am inviting you to do that testing work in my heart. There's also an element of asking God's help filled throughout these laments of David. Psalm 35, 22 to 24. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause. My God and my Lord, vindicate me. O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let not let them not rejoice over me. So David, filled with this sense of injustice and afraid that God has withdrawn his presence, says, God, be near me. Don't be silent, but be my vindicator, my advocate. Psalm 61, one through three, says, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. In this psalm, David is expressing these feelings of just being utterly overwhelmed by the circumstances. And basically what he's saying is that all of my defenses have fallen apart. But then what he says to God is this, is I feel so exposed, so naked. And so God, you be my strong tower. You be that place of final refuge when I feel that all of my other defenses have failed. You be my protector, the one who cares for me. I want to say this. I think our knowledge of God is pretty shallow when life is easy for us. And everything goes according to our expectations. I mean, what does it even mean when we say God is good during good times? I think the truth is God is good because life is good. Right? We don't even know how to separate those two. It's not until we experience suffering and loss that we are really forced to ask ourselves, what do I even mean when I say God is good? What is behind that statement in my own heart? Going back to the testimony of Nicholas Waltersdorf, look at what he says about his own journey into that discovery. I have no explanation. I can do nothing else than endure in the face of this deepest and most painful of mysteries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and resurrector of Jesus Christ. I also believe that my son's life was cut off in its prime. I cannot fit these pieces together. I am at a loss to the most agonized question I have ever asked, I do not know the answer. I do not know why God would watch him fall. I do not know why God would watch me wounded. I cannot even guess. Faith endures, but my address to God is uncomfortably perplexing, altered. It's off target, qualified. I want to ask for Eric back, but I can't. So I aim around the bullseye. I want to ask that God protect the members of my family, but I ask that for Eric. I must explore the lament as a mode for my address to God. Can you see the utter disorientation that Walter Storf is going through? He is struggling to find his way back to these most foundational truths that he has believed in all his life, but now seem utterly shaken in the wake of his son's death. And now he's even trying to rediscover what prayer means. Because he says, I want to pray for protection for my family that remains, but I don't even know if I'm allowed to pray that prayer or if God wants that in light of what happened to my son. Because I prayed for my son and he died. What can I expect from God? What can I ask of God? Walter Storff will go on this incredibly difficult journey of once again coming back to that place. Of the foundational truths he believes as a Christian. That God is good that God is love, that God is with him. But it's an incredibly deeper sense in which he came to an understanding of these truths. Lament finally invites us to place our faith and trust in God in spite of our present circumstances. In other words, in suffering and loss, God invites us to the deepest levels of trust in him, Trust that is rooted totally in who he is and not dependent on our circumstances. This is the place of trust and confidence that David would confess to over and over again in his Psalms of Lament. Psalm 54, verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 56, verse 4, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Psalm 59, verse 9 to 10. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Psalm 71, verse 20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. What I find so breathtaking about that final psalm, is that David is acknowledging that everything he's going through is not because God is absent in his life, but because God is present. And he's saying that in your sovereignty, you allowed these things to happen to me. And yet, nevertheless, I turn to you as my source of hope and comfort out of these situations. He says, nevertheless, I will acknowledge that God is good. He is good to me. The essence of man-made religion is to try to manipulate God through our acts of devotion. This is sort of religion at its worst, is if I do the things that God wants me of me, then I expect him to do the things I want for my life. If I keep sexually pure, then God will give me the perfect soulmate for the rest of my life. If I attend church faithfully and serve God, God will protect my children. If I just pray long and hard enough, God will eventually give me what I ask. Are these really guarantees that God gives us in his word? But through the laments we come to realize that God is not someone that we can manipulate, but someone to whom we must surrender all of our conditions and all of our preconceived notions of what he ought to do in any given situation. In other words, true religion is a relationship with God, trusting that he loves us no matter what circumstances we face in life. We can ask God for help in our days of trouble. And the truth is, many times God will deliver us. God will help us. But we do so with a humility that acknowledges that everything is under his control and that his ways are higher than our ways. In other words, through lament, we learn to surrender the conditions that we often place on God. The expectations of what he must do to prove himself to us. And yet we can ask. We're invited to ask and seek his help in our times of trouble. But we do so adopting a posture of trust. Even in the face of great pain and loss, believing that God is always good. And I think the place of confidence in that is the cross of Christ. In the cross, we see the most powerful demonstration Of the depths to which God would go to to show his love and commitment for us. Walter Storr's journey would end at the cross after everything that he went through at the loss of his son. Where God would finally lead him is to the place of the cross, to the deepest understanding of suffering and loss in his own life. He writes, How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You have allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You have allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped. If you had not abandoned us, explain yourself. We strain to hear. But instead of hearing an answer, we get sight of God himself, scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. A new and more disturbing question now arises. Why do you permit yourself to suffer, O God? God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. And great mystery to redeem our brokenness and lovelessness. The God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us. Through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Put your hand into my wounds, said the risen Jesus to Thomas, and you will know who I am. The wounds of Christ are his identity. They tell us who he is. He did not lose them. They went down into the grave with him, and they came up with him, visible, tangible, palpable. Rising did not remove them. He who broke the bonds of death kept his wounds. I think that's why all true lament ends at the cross of Christ. We don't know what God is going to ask us to go through in the course of our lives. But we can know with certainty that God loves us and cares for us. Paul would write to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. You know, sometimes I think in a misguided way, we at the church... um, Try to get everyone to be happy, you know? And happiness is a good thing. Uh, there's, There's much to celebrate and there's much to be happy about. But we also know that living in a broken world, there's a lot of pain and a lot of loss. And I worry that sometimes our misguided attempts at faith undercut the journey that is so raw and real that is recorded to us in the pages of Scripture itself of God saying, I am not afraid of your honest emotions. And sometimes the best thing that you could do is sit at my feet and rage and say, God, I just don't understand your ways. I don't get this. I can't make sense of this. But then it also comes in that lament, a humility that seeks understanding and says, help me, God, help me. I need your help to get to a better place than this. And ultimately, what lament invites us to in the deepest level of healing work that God can do in our hearts is to say, whatever I'm going through, to the greatest mountain peaks of my victories, the darkest valleys, when I feel that I am in the shadow of the valley of death, the valley of the shadow of death, nevertheless, nevertheless, God, you are good. You are good to me. And I don't know, some of you may just, as you're listening to this sermon, you are blessed because you frankly can't identify with this. How awesome is that? If your life has been so good that you, you don't ever feel like you've had to lament. But I suspect that there are some of you that have experienced some pain and loss and you are struggling with, does faith really have an answer for this? Is there really an invitation of God for me to get to a place of healing? And I want to invite you to enter into that journey of lament with God. And in that moment of honesty, of pouring your soul to Him, let the work of His Spirit heal you and bring you to those much deeper understandings when God says, nevertheless I am good and I love you and I care for you. Let's just pray that as the worship team comes to lead us in a Time of response through singing.
0: The sadness we experience in life usually arises from things we have no control over, is not to be taken lightly. So may God be so present in your life that you can face your grief with honesty. May the fear of your sadness not lead you to run away from the work God is doing, to just move on without actually letting God do his work in you. And may the force of your sadness not be so great that you just cannot move at all and you're destroyed. But Let God use your grief to open up that relationship between you and him so at the end you can learn that he cares for you. If you are going through something and you need help, would you reach out to one of the pastors or a leader at our church and let them know you're struggling to walk alone and you need someone to stand with you. And in every moment you're by yourself, know that you're never alone. He is with you. Now be blessed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit of God.